What's up? How are you? How are you? I've been, I've been, uh, I've been like harassing you all week, like trying not to bother you. But like, are you okay? What can? What's up? What, like, how are you feeling? But trying not to do that as well. Yeah, no, I'm okay. Um, it has actually been exactly a week. So if if the people don't know what we're referring to, I was uh, in Beirut when this uh, huge explosion happened exactly a week ago, um, which I guess by now everyone has heard about. Uh, because it's kind of been a, at the top of the news everywhere. Um, yeah, I'm back in London now, which that in itself feels a bit weird to have left uh, Beirut after something like that. Uh, feels very guilt. I mean, I, I left on my scheduled flight and all of that. Um, I know you were struggling with the decision as well. Yeah, because honestly, like I've never seen or experienced anything like it. Um, so I guess let's just tell people what it is. You know, I'm, I'm maybe not everyone's like familiar with what happened. So last last Tuesday at around 6 p.m., uh, a massive explosion went off. Actually, two explosions went off uh, in Beirut. Um, initially, a lot of people thought uh, we'd kind of been expecting some sort of Israeli strike. Uh, you know, we'd expected so much. <laughs> uh, the last thing we expected was that it would just be something as mundane as just some assholes left 2,700 uh, tons of ammonium nitrate in the middle of the city. Uh, I mean, I use assholes very generously. Uh, you know, the the real terms, I don't know if I can say them. Uh, but, you know, like it's, uh, uh, yeah. So basically that happened a week ago. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know the latest death count. I think it's around 200 people dead. 6,000 injured, 300,000 homeless. I mean, it's just on a scale that's kind of uh, completely impossible to understand. Even for us, you know, even for a country that's been through so much, this is impossible to, I still don't understand how it happened, what happened. I saw a lot of people saying that, you know, it was, it was the biggest, it's the, what, the third biggest, I think, explosion ever. Yeah, I don't. I, I saw that going around. The thing is, there's a lot of kind of uh, not fake news, but you know, people are trying to rationalize it. So they're trying to compare, put it like in these charts that compare it to Hiroshima and that kind of thing. I think definitely. I think the closest I've seen to like an accurate figure is it's something like one. Uh, actually, I'm going to say something. I don't even know, but it's something around like between one fifth and one tenth of an atomic bomb. Which you know, either of those two is insane. Um, I can tell you, like, I was six or seven kilometers away from where it happened. And I was sitting with my mom and we were both thrown, thrown to the floor, like six kilometers away. And I don't, I don't honestly remember if it was, um, if it was the, the, the force of the blast or just the panic. Cause it's, it's a sound, I mean, I've heard, uh, you know, sadly being Lebanese, I've heard explosions in the past. I've heard car bombs, but this was just like it shook you from your inside. And I'm, again, I was six, seven miles away. And so people who were closer. So actually one of the people. So what happened is so we, we heard this go off. Immediate reaction is, oh, we're under attack. So from my parents' place, which is up in the hills, you have a vantage point of the city. So I, I, tr I kind of start, looked at the airport. And there was nothing at the airport. I was like, okay, that's weird. I thought they would hit the airport first. Then I started to scan the horizon and noticed, oh, it looks like it's towards the port. 
And then I remembered my father was having an interview at the Nahar building, which so Nahar is one of the like top newspapers in in the region, and uh, its office is I think around a mile away, a bit less even. So it's really like walking distance from the port, really. Um, and he was there. He's been he's been writing for Nahar since he was uh, like seventeen or eighteen. Uh, and he's 79 now. So so he was kind of being interviewed by someone there. And I couldn't get through to him initially because uh, obviously all the lines were down. And um, uh, and I couldn't get through to him. Eventually he managed to get through to the person who had driven him down because my father doesn't drive anymore. Uh, and he told me, he's like, look, I can't get to him. There's people all around. Like he wasn't making sense, to be honest. And I could tell he was shell-shocked. Which then, because I hadn't seen, we hadn't seen anything yet, right? We hadn't seen any images, so I didn't know the scale of it. I just heard the sound, and um, eventually got through to my father, who told me, "I'm okay, I'm okay." Uh, uh, Edmond, so the guy who drove him down, he's like, "Yeah, he he's found a way to get home," and I'm now in this car with these strangers who are driving towards Tripoli in the north, and I I'm just with them in the car. Wow! And in a weird way, like my first thought was like COVID, like, cause my dad's, you know, 79. And all I could think is like, Oh no, he's with strangers in a car. I hope he's wearing his mask. And which I know sounds stupid in hindsight, but that was my first concern is I hope like they're wearing masks. I know it sounds so stupid. I now. just think it's so tragic to have to, you've had to think about all of these things in addition, you know? And like, I saw that you had said, you know, your, your friend tweeted saying that you, you, you basically had said to her, like, we're still trying to maintain physical distancing. So we can't even like hug and comfort each other, which I just think is so heartbreaking. Like it's yeah. just, I mean like, so, so what happened then is he was, so he's in this car and I told him, look, uh, do you know where you are now? And he couldn't explain to me where he was. Like, I think he was really shell shocked. And I kept telling him like, you know, uh, tell me when you hit this point and I'll get out there and, uh, you know, either I come find you there or someone can come find you there because it's it's going to be a bit further away from where this is all happening. Even, uh, But at this point, I still don't understand the scale of it because it had just happened minutes ago, right? So um, he kind of, I think, was confused. So he got out of the car at the wrong point. I told him, look, we have a, like the, the, the production company I, I work with, uh, like we, we have a driver who takes care of, you know, he's like a runner. Like he, he helps us get from A to B and, uh, you know, move stuff around town. So I told, I knew he was near there. I was like, if you can pick him up, like I'll be forever grateful. Like if you're in the area and it took him an hour to get to him, like he was maybe 10 minutes away, but because of all the destruction, he told me like, so I was like kind of learning live on the phone. He told me like, I can't drive further than this. So I'm going to go walk and find him. Wow. So he walked to find him. And at this point, my dad was at the intersection of, so Maram Khail and Bish Hamoud. So, one of the kind of really affected areas. And so I later found out that he was basically like all these people like were injured and, and everything like walking past him. And and so like everyone was confused. No one could help him because no one knew what where they were. And like everyone was shell-shocked around him. Eventually he got home a couple of hours later, like very two very, very, very long hours. Um, and he just seemed like shaken and... Um, but he was, it was like a miracle. I honestly don't know because a couple of people did die in the building he was in. And, um, and even like he was explaining to me, he said, you know, like when the blast went off, like all the windows, like there's all the windows on this building, like the, all the windows blew out. He said, then the roof started caving in 
And he said, but then the it kind of just caved in like all around me, but nothing hit me. And he just couldn't understand how nothing had hit him. And he was on the fifth floor and somehow, and he told me, he's like, I kind of just sat there and I didn't know what he's, he just kind of, I don't want to say gave up, but he was just like, was almost peaceful and calm. Like he just didn't move until someone came in and like grabbed him and they found the emergency exit. Cause all the other exits were like uh, kind of collapsed. Um, so yeah, but like, but honestly, like all of this, and we're like extremely lucky. Like this is nothing happened to anyone in our family, which is, but the scale of it is just because everyone I'm seeing, like every time I'm watching the news, I'm like, oh, I know that person, I know that person, I know that person. Everyone, like I have, I mean, I mean, I know two people who've died. Not like really? they're not like, yeah, I mean, they they weren't like my closest friends, but I've met them a few times. I had a drink with them, you know. As is Beirut, you know, Beirut's a small place. Everyone kind of knows everyone. Um, that sector of the city, partially, you know, so from a lot of those, the sectors that were affected, there where a lot of kind of young middle-class people live, where there's a lot of uh, uh, creative businesses. But as well, like, it's, the thing is, it's across the board because there's like kind of working-class areas, middle-class areas, very expensive buildings, there's kind of your local mechanic as well as a design studio. Everything's mixed into that area. So the, the, the destruction affected so many people from different backgrounds. And the thing is, it's all in this one instant, you know, whereas, because everyone's been trying to, to process what they're feeling. And everyone has, again, sadly lived through war. You know, we lived through the 2006 war. We lived, obviously, the civil war for the older amongst us a lot of car bombings, but we're used to like, you know, a car bombing goes off, you figure out where it went off, you contact the friends you know in that area that might have been there. And then you're like, okay, no one, everyone's fine. But here, the scale of it, like I haven't been able to call everyone. Like I keep remembering people who live in that area. And obviously I contacted, I don't know, maybe a hundred people to see if they're okay. And obviously a lot of people contacted me. and, um, And it's just impossible because the scale of it, like the amount of people that I would know or that, you know, my friends would know who live in that area is just immense. Like it's thousands and thousands of people and everyone I know, like my, 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 uh, my wife's parents place, like all the windows got blown out and they're quite far away from the port, you know, but every single one of their windows got blown out uh, again, across the city. Like everyone has the same trauma in the same moment, which is a kind of a new experience for everyone. Um, and it's all down to just this pure incompetence. It's not even incompetence. It's like this carelessness. Yeah. But it's, yeah, like neglect and the willful kind of, you know, like everyone, everyone, like all these people in power knew this shit was there for years. And I can't help but think, you know, like those, that all of that stuff was there for all these years where we were kind of, everyone was drinking. Like that's the main also like kind of strip where people go out at night and where all the bars are and the restaurants. And I can't help thinking like if it was at rush hour, if it was not during COVID. So if that place was packed with people, if it would be, these numbers are already insanely unfathomable and it would be just multiplied by so much. Uh, and you know, in August, a lot of people go up to the mountains because it gets very hot in the city. So I don't know, like all these factors meant that maybe it was less destructive. But again, it's just, 
I don't know. It's just like the the the, the scale of it is impossible to explain. Like for the the stretch of of the city that's uh, affected. Um, I know I've seen a lot of these maps that show kind of what it would look like if it was in London or whatever. Yeah. And that's mental. That's like the whole of London, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would be like, you know, if it went off in Soho, the destruction would reach, I don't know, like proper destruction would reach Camden. Then uh, beyond that, like up until, I don't know, Chiswick, I don't know, I'm just naming, I don't even, I don't have the boroughs in mind, but like you'd have broken glass like at Croydon. You know, like, I mean, I, just to put the into perspective, like how, and I mean, broken glass isn't nothing, right? Broken glass, like showered down on people. All my friends were sending me photos of basically the glass they'd crawled out from under. Um, I have so many friends who've had to have like 35 stitches, 22 stitches, a brain hemorrhage. And they consider, they say we're the lucky ones. So imagine like those are the lucky ones. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, I mean, and, and, and this obviously comes on top of all the problems Lebanon was having anyway. So, Obviously, we were deep, deep, deep into an economic crisis, which meant there was no money in the country. There were no, like, imports were being really reduced. Um, uh, there was a political crisis, obviously. The, uh, you know, the revolution started last October. Um, there was all these problems, and no one, no one, no one had even factored this as a possibility. Like, no one knew about this fucking hangar. With- it's mental. And we drive past this place. I've driven past that thing every day for years. Like that's my, that's how I drive to the office. And we had just moved actually, like, I mean, this is not even important in any way, but we had moved into an office the day before uh, my produ- uh, production company. We'd moved into an office the day before that's a few hundred meters away from the port. And none of you were there at the time. None of us were there, luckily, because usually we're at the office quite late. But we were asked to leave at 5 p.m. because they needed to shut off the generator because there was no power. So by some and the whole office is obviously like glass outdoors and glass partitions inside a lot of this. And I mean, I saw a photo of the office and it's just I think none of us had the courage to kind of go down there. And um so the people who take care of the office sent us a photo of the people who run the complex that it's in. Um, and it's just, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, we would have just been like covered, buried in glass really. I mean, maybe we would have gotten out of there. Okay. But um, like, I'm just so happy that none of us were there. Um, but, but the thing is like, that's so unimportant. Like, we're not even thinking about that for a minute because it's nothing compared to like people who've lost their homes and you know serious injuries and obviously like all of these people who've died and and i have i have a friend for example in in the states who i mean so many people reached out people i haven't spoken to in 20 years someone reached out like literally i sat next to him on a, at a co-working space for a few months five years ago i don't know how he found my email and emailed me to say like i hope Aww. you're okay yeah and you know when that happened i realized the scale of it because i thought this is a lebanese disaster but when when people started reaching out like that, I realized like no, this is a global humanitarian disaster. Like this is on a this is on a, a on a global scale. And my friend, so this friend in the states was telling me he's like, this is the first thing, this is the the thing outside my own country that has affected me the most in my life. And he's like, and I don't understand why. He's like, I, obviously I love you and Noor, and I know that you know I care about Lebanon through you guys. And I told him that's because literally everyone you're seeing on the news is a friend. 
Yeah. Everyone you've seen on screen is someone we've met or had some interaction with, even if it's the neighborhood uh, corner shop or the per- person who owns this bar or the person whose house got blown away or this. All of these people are people who are in our daily lives. Uh, so that's why you're affected because you, they remind you of us because, like, you know, they're they're literally us. <laughs> and, and I think it's that realization as well that like so much of the time, like things in the Middle East or, you know, in Lebanon, you mentioned that there have been, you know, a number of wars in, in your lifetime even. And I feel like it's 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 the fact that it's not even that it's like a really dumb, horrific thing that should have been prevented yeah, that I mean, kind of makes it feel worse, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a friend who told me he's like, "I wish we'd been attacked." He said, "If we'd been attacked, this would have made more sense." Which I know so- it might sound insane to someone who's listening to this, but I know what they mean because we've grown so used to government neglect and negligence, and we're so kind of almost immune to it. Like we just live our lives away from the government. Like we try to do everything without the government because we know the government's not there to help us. It's there to just put obstacles in our way and at worst harm us. And, and the fact that this was just because a bunch of fucking idiots couldn't figure out. And the only reason they didn't get rid of this is they couldn't figure out how to like make money off of it. Because one guy tried to see if he could sell it as himself you know, one of these port officials tried to sell it as himself. Someone tried, I was reading now in Reuters uh, that some like Lebanese explosives company tried to sell it. All, like, you know, so basically the, the, the reason all this shit is there for seven years is because no one could figure out how to make money off of it. It's fucking enraging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like just disposing of it safely, you know, who cares about that, right? No, we need to make a few million off of this shit. And in the meantime, but what I don't get is like these murderers is that like this stuff, like their kids, right? These criminal murderers who run, who run the country, this stuff could have killed their kids. I mean, you know, like don't care about me, care about your own kids. And that, that's what's so, you know, confusing is that like you, they could have died. Like they drive past these same, same roads. Like their greed goes beyond their care for themselves, you know, which is, which is even more unfathomable, you know? And, and now, like this rage that we all have, you know, those who are still around and those who can and have the the kind of uh, physical ability to be enraged, you know, I mean, well, the government yesterday resigned. What does that mean? The thing is, I mean, it means nothing uh, uh, at the end of the day, because we've had it's something insane. Like in our 75 year history, we've had 75 governments like our governments don't last more than a year anyway, like. Governments keep collapsing. Now the kind of this elaborate dance of bullshit of, you know, who's going to, the how they're going to carve up the, the the spoils, you know. So like now they're talking about this ex-prime minister coming back and all of this. Like the system is so corrupt to the core that the government resigning doesn't mean someone good is going to come in its place. Now they're going to, like these people will never let go of power. So I think the only real potential thing that could save us is early elections because the parliament you know, uh, gives the vote of confidence in the in the government. I don't know if I'm making. I, I, I think that's correct. I'm a bit angry at the moment, so I'm not sure about my like constitutional law. But yeah. I think I think the parliament is where, and a lot of like a, people have resigned from the parliament. Like a handful of people who have kind of independent or more conscientious uh, points of view, including a party that's a bit controversial. You know, was involved in the war, etc. Uh, have also resigned. 
you know, that's, I mean, I don't, honestly, I, I, I hate everyone. Like I, I don't, um, I have no party political affinities in, uh, in Lebanon. Cause I just consider they all have blood on their hands and we just need something completely, completely new. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's hard to understand where that even starts. But, and the people, like people have not, like I was just talking to a friend now, um, cause his, how his building was completely destroyed. And I mean, he's safe, but like four people died in his building. Um, and he was telling me, he's like driving around, like walking around the, in Ashrafi, so one of the areas affected. He said people are out in the street, like begging, not begging for food because people have set up kind of soup kitchens. He's like, people are lined up waiting for food. And these are people who are already struggling. And now they don't even have their homes. Like the last thing they had, like the banks took all their money. Like they weren't allowed to withdraw money because of these informal capital controls. Obviously, coronavirus had destroyed what was left of the economy. Uh, not that there was much left. Huh? Like I, th- I wouldn't put too much blame on coronavirus because like uh, the, the government had managed to destroy a lot on its own. Um, then now, like people just had their homes and their cars. Like those were the two things they had left. And like all the cars are destroyed and all the homes are destroyed. And now, like, this rage, I mean, people occupied ministries, um, which has never happened. Like, we've never had citizens kind of go into ministries and start looking through the files and kind of just sit there and, like, torch stuff. Like, it's on another level. Like, the anger. And it's just been a week, by the way. So, like, everything that's happened. um, And and actually, I want to focus also, like, on the really good stuff that's happened in this week. I mean, good. Good is is a weird word to use. But the the heartwarming or uplifting stuff that's happened is first of all, so many people have donated. So I was yesterday with one of the co-founders of uh, impact Lebanon and impact Lebanon at my last count. uh, Actually, I'll try to pull it up now, but in my last count, they had raised 6 million pounds in a week. It's amazing. They met their target almost instantly. As far as I saw. Yeah. They met the 5 million pound target. Then they increased it to 7.5 million. So if you haven't donated, head to Impact Lebanon, donate. Impact Lebanon, they're a UK-based nonprofit. What they're doing is they're collecting all of these funds and then they're distributing them to various NGOs. So they they earmark, for example, $200,000 for the Lebanese Red Cross, or maybe it was 100000 I don't know. But they, they work with an organization that makes sure the money gets there as efficiently as possible, that it doesn't get lost along the way, that the most possible goes to relief and not to like marketing or salaries, which are all concerns people have. And everyone's trying to bypass the government in terms of aid. Uh, even when uh, Emmanuel Macron was in Beirut, kind of in the streets, the you know, before any Lebanese... Uh, you know, Lebanese um, leaders haven't set foot on the rubble. Like Emmanuel Macron, it was the first leader, foreign or not, to set foot on the rubble. Um, which, whatever, I have French friends who say, like, oh, this is uh, neo-colonialism and white savior complex and whatever. Which I was arguing, yeah, like, I mean, I was telling one of my French friends, like, who's saying this on their uh, Twitter, Instagram. I said, look, yeah, but no, like, that's not how we see it. You don't get to tell us what's neo-colonial. Like we see this as someone saving us at our most difficult time. I'm sure he has his, you know, intentions politically behind it. We don't care. Everyone's dying. We need this. Like we you know, need like help. Yeah. Yeah, we need help, regardless of where it comes from. Yeah, you want to call it interventionism. You want to call it whatever. People took hope from it. People took hope that someone gives a shit. You know, someone who doesn't have to be there is there, and it gave people hope. You can. 
it's complicated, it's problematic, whatever. We're a former French colony. Some people prefer the word mandate, but like it's a, that's basically a colony by a fancier name. Um, so it's it's weird. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's not weird to like see our savior as this French president. But well, if your own government's not doing it, someone has to. And people in the street were shouting towards him, saying, "Please don't give the money to our government. Please give the money to the people, to the Red Cross." Please bypass the government however you can, which is a big problem with international aid anyway, is that a lot of it gets siphoned off. You know, once it reaches a corrupt government, only a fraction of it actually makes it to any of the projects. Um, and he said, don't worry, I'm here for the people. I'm not here for, for, for your leaders, which in a way, again, like people in France saw that as him overstepping. But we saw that as finally the international community is going to punish these people because we need them punished. You know, like we need these people who've been ruining Lebanon, not just ruining, like they're a cancer, they're a parasite on us, uh, on the people who can't, haven't had a breath of fresh air in 30 years, who at every turn, everything you do, you have to pay a bribe at every level. The, the system is just there to like completely eat you up alive. And yeah, like we enjoyed that someone like a foreign power with actual might is saying we're going to make them pay because who's going to we're going to make them pay how how do we make them pay like we're just this population that can't doesn't have any power to you know besides protest and smashing a few things like we what what can we really do you know i guess this has just made it beyond 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 clear there's no arguments here that the government's fucked you know like people have been protesting in the streets for months and months like there's is like what what further evidence do you need now after this huge fucking disaster of explosion and not just the the reaction to the disaster so like this other friend was telling me that basically the relief workers the people they they on the first two days there's still people under the rubble they ordered the rescue teams to stop work at eight because they didn't have electricity to power the lights they only had electricity to power the lights around the perimeter to secure the port, but they didn't have lights for the search team, which, I mean, uh, you know, there's 80, 90 people missing, you know, and and the priority was to secure the perimeter of this port rather than to find these 90 people. Like, even the reaction, no response, no one took any responsibility, no one apologized. They're, literally, the cleanup, so obviously you have the city that's in rubble now, not a single government organization is involved in the cleanup there's some soldiers and some police like hanging around watching all these 20 year old 30 year old 40 year old people who live in these areas who've brought their brooms down and are doing their own cleanup non-professional volunteers putting themselves at risk in these buildings that are now structurally unsafe and they're doing the cleanup no one has helped anyone shocking and uh this void of leadership, this void of any kind of responsibility and everyone from, you know, every single person in power says, Oh, that wasn't my, the port's not my responsibility. Oh, I didn't know anything about that. Oh yeah. I wanted to do something, but they wouldn't let me do anything. Like you're in fucking power. Like this is your responsibility. You fuck up, you leave. Something happens on your watch. You apologize, you leave. That's how it works. You know, if a CEO of a company, if someone below them does something wrong, the CEO resigns. They say that happened on my watch, my my lack of leadership. I'm sorry, bye. And it's just infuriate. Like the rage is building by the minute. Like the, my friends are more enraged. Like the sadness of the past week has turned into rage now, which is this is it. Like this has to be the end of this system. 
otherwise there's not like you you know there's nothing left um there's already nothing left like we just we just want to like recover the the ruins to try to make something out of it and i mean what can we do to help Look, I mean, the, the, so the obvious is donations. So uh, Impact Lebanon, there's a, there's the Lebanese Red Cross. Uh, we'll share, we'll share. There's, a, there's, there's a lot of people who've put together like really good lists of places you can help. And there are like specific lists as well. Like my friend, you know, is a mom and she's like really, she wants to donate particularly to, to like children. And she found a charity on the ground that does that. Like there are specific charities as well. Yeah. Yeah. We'll link to those in the, in the show notes. Um, the, the the other problem is that the money is hard to get into the country because of the financial crisis. So I know this from Impact Lebanon is that they have seven million. They can't just transfer seven million to Lebanon because then they get stuck in the banks because the banks are kind of holding the population hostage. Uh, so what they have to do is they have to do it through partner organizations that have charity status in Lebanon so that they can access the cash immediately. So they've done that with a couple of organizations. Uh, one is called Life. Um, I forget now what the other one is called, but it's all on their website. They're, they're extremely transparent. Um, so that's another issue. Which So now one of the things we're trying to do, um, we, I'm literally talking about me, my wife, and a couple of friends, we, 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 we sat around yesterday and tried to discuss this, which is um, how can we get like in-kind donations? So basically donations that aren't money. So I noticed from all these photos that a lot of iMacs and MacBooks and stuff were smashed because it's the whole creative industry operates out of there. So all these fashion houses, design studios, production houses, you know, all of these people have lost all of their equipment. So their ability to work is severely limited and their ability to access money is limited. So they can't even buy new hardware, right? So what if we solve that for them? So we're trying to see, like, we've reached out to Apple to see if there's a way to get uh, donations of uh, computers. Uh, and we're trying, we're now doing this inventory of basically creative. So if anyone listening to this has ideas around this, please reach out to me on Twitter or wherever. Uh, we're trying to do a list of the creative, we're, we're focusing on the creative industries because that's close to our heart. And, and a lot of people are working on the more humanitarian side. I know this is might sound like a very frivolous or maybe not the first priority, but these people are working and employ a lot of people and like the work needs to continue so people can live. So no, and also everyone needs to tackle um, different angles. Like ultimately this is all for the same greater good, right? We can't all be focusing on, on one thing. Exactly. So, so now we're starting this kind of inventory and a survey of basically what's been damaged, who needs what, you know, do fashion uh, kind of uh, studios need the, I don't know, sewing machines. And we're trying to get those directly instead of giving them money to get them the gear itself so they don't have to buy it. And we're trying to do deals with DHL, Aramex, Agility, whatever, all these uh, shipping companies that can still fly through the airport to give us free uh, shipping on all of this stuff. And that's like outreach we're start, try, starting to do now. We're just trying to figure out if we should register a nonprofit or a charity in the UK. I don't know. We're, we're figuring out the mechanics of it. But while we figure out the mechanics, we're already reaching out to corporations to see what they can do and reaching out to corporations to match donations. So anyone who's donating to Impact or any other charity in Lebanon, some corporations double up those. So if you work at a big corporate, if you work at Google, if you work at Facebook, check that in your system, you have a donation system at work. If you donate, let's say, £100, they'll match it and it'll be £200. And if these charities aren't in the system, reach out to me, reach out to Impact Lebanon, and we can help you put them in the system. 
That's uh, amazing. So we could double up the, the... And the other thing that people can do to help is keep this in the news. So, because the big fear is, okay, now it's been a week, other tragedies are happening in the world. The government's now resigned, so maybe a lot of people internationally think that's that's a victory and that's all over now and we're all good. This is the devastation from this will last a decade, at least. Like the the, the physical rebuilding of individual homes is going to take... Like I have a friend who told me he estimates his flat's going to take three months to be inhabitable again. I have another friend who's closer to the port. She says it's going to be a year before she can... Like her. Where home. are they living now? They, they're with parents. They're with friends. I have friends who've moved in with other friends who are just outside the city who don't have any damage. Um, people are doing whatever they can. Like my, my, my wife's family is up in the mountains in the south of the country. They have a, a lot of people have a village house. Uh, so people have left the city and, you know, people are trying to also shelter their kids from all of this and the, the sadness. So they, they're taking their kids out of the city if they can, if they can go to whatever village they're originally from. They usually have a little mountain house there. Um, uh, some people are, you know, up the coast further. No, ev- everyone's just finding a way, I guess. A lot of people don't have that option. So honestly, I don't even know. Like in that scenario, what's happening? Um, so there are a lot of shelters, and there are like maps of shelters. Yeah, people people have mobilized incredibly quickly. Sadly, like in the last year, people have <laughs> developed this muscle of solidarity. I mean, I say sadly because the conditions in which we de- we developed it are sad, but it's good that we have it. People are there for each other. People are immediately so. Th- Kamal Mzawa, who is an amazing man who owns uh, and started uh, something called Tawle, which is a restaurant uh, and now like a series of restaurants and a brand, etc., that that focus on Lebanese terroir. So they bring people to like, you know, instead of like a fancy Lebanese restaurant, what it is, is they bring uh, cooks from all around the country to cook their traditional um, meals. And so they bring people into the restaurant industry that otherwise wouldn't have a real income from what they do. They would just be sitting in their village without an income. And he's really been able to like empower a whole segment of society and transmit this food culture that we kind of lost track of. So what he's turned, he's turned everything now into a soup kitchen. So now uh, he's working with, it's an international organization, which I forget the name, but I think it's called world soup kitchen or world something kitchen. Um, And they're just cooking en masse, like, food for everyone and they're in the affected area like his you know he was affected physically by the blast you know and 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 they're they're doing everything they can to 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 feed people um in the area and beyond so people are mobilizing it's it's just so sad that we have to think of all of this on top of all the misery that was already there like i had been in beirut for three weeks before this happened and they were very difficult weeks like i was very very saddened by where the country's got into. I hadn't been there since March because of the coronavirus lockdown. So the airport was closed since March. I went there because we had a project that was starting, which obviously, I mean, that's a whole other, like that project is on pause, uh, obviously, but that's like the least of anyone's worries. Um, except that it, it is a worry because I want to get people paid. Like that's my main concern now is the 50 or so people who are going to work on this project, uh, you know, we need to find a way to, to not keep them, you know, uh, in this horrible situation now where they have, you know, they have repairs to do on their homes. They have all this stuff and like what this project, we can't let it fall up. Anyway, that's a whole other debate for another time. But um, I feel like it must be so difficult because so much is like, 
your feelings, you're like, oh, this doesn't matter. Everything you're like, this doesn't matter. And I feel like that guilt um, is must be very hard to 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 live with. And like, how do you take care of yourself so that you can take care of other people as well? Like, it's 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 just a lot, isn't it? You know, I was telling uh, there's a there's a writer called Lina Munzer, um, and she's written like over the past few months some amazing, amazing. I think I've recommended her on the last episode, or actually, actually, I think I recommended because we just to tell people we had recorded an episode while I was in Beirut that we decided to scrap because it was you know like it was before the the explosion and it was kind of a, light, a normal lighthearted episode where we just talked chatted shit about the world. And I think I recommended Lena and, and we thought it was uh, inappropriate to put that one out and we had to put this one out. Um, but so I was telling Lena who's someone I've never met in person, like we we're supposed to meet uh, this time around. Uh, and I just, I'm a huge admirer of her writing and her work and her, you know, everything uh, about her. And I was just reaching out to tell her because she'd written this piece, a very, very moving piece in the New York Times. And I was just telling her, like, I'm happy you're okay. I'm happy your family's okay if you need anything. You know, the, the thing I've been texting everyone basically in the last uh, week. And I was telling her, like, I feel so guilty for having left, you know, because I had this dilemma of my wife has been in London alone for three weeks and she's been digesting this whole tragedy alone. And she thought she was terrified for me. She was terrified for my dad. She was terrified for her family. She was, you know, and all of our friends, and in my mind, I was like, do I come back on my scheduled flight to be with her or do I stay in Lebanon to help my friends clean up and piece their lives back together? And so I asked my friends, you know, like, what do you, what do I do? Like, I don't know. I want to help you clean your house and I want to help this. And, and they all told me, no, go be with your wife. You know, like uh, so many people just told me that. And, and I honestly, like the whole flight back, I had tears in my eyes because I just felt like such a coward, you know, to be leaving um in the midst of all of this and so i was telling this to lena just on twitter like we were talking in uh, private messages um and she told me like what no don't feel guilty uh and i i had been back for a few days already in london and i had been i haven't slept in a week i mean no one has slept in a week and i've been having nightmares and i've been sleeping like two hours at a time and all of this and now it's compounded with guilt at, at being away uh, and having left. And so I was telling her like, yeah, like the guilt, like is just so much at the moment. And she was telling me like, you know, why, like, you're not the one you shouldn't be, feel, you shouldn't feel guilty. You should feel angry at the people who put you in this impossible situation where, you know, you have to pick between being with someone you love that, you know, they've driven you out of the country. And now you have to pick to be with the person that, you know, they've driven you both out of the country and you want to be with the person you love and you want to help your family and friends here and they've put you in this position. You haven't put yourself in this position. There's nothing to feel guilty about. And honestly, like I was reading this, I think I'd woken up at 5 a.m. or something. And I was reading this uh, and I just like started crying like because uh, I'd been in tears for a week, but I hadn't cried like, you know, like earth shattering cry. And I hadn't been sleeping. I, I'd been sleeping in the living room because I kept waking up and I didn't want to keep waking Nora up. So I'd been sleeping in the living room so like my night my nightmares wouldn't wake Nora up. And like I just started crying so uncontrollably like at this message from her. And Nora actually woke up uh to that and she came running. She's like, Are you okay? What's happening? Why are you having a nightmare? I told her, No, I just got this message that like just like allowed me to cry for the first time. <clears throat> and um yeah, you know, and she said and she said this thing about like 
the, this explosion and its debris is in your heart and your mind. Like it'll never leave you wherever you go. And so like you, there's no guilt to have, you know, like you're, and um, yeah, it's, I was, I was even talking to a friend here yesterday who she feels guilty, which I often do. Cause I'm, I'm often not in Lebanon when something horrible happens. And so I have that guilt, almost like a survivor's guilt or something of, of, of not being part of it. Um, and so she was telling me she feels so guilty for being here in London and not having experienced it and being there with her friends. And, and I told her like, you know, please like, don't, don't like this guilt is, it just eats you up inside. It's not useful to anyone. It's not, it's not useful to you. It's, it's, I think it's a normal reaction, but like, I think we just need to get through it as quickly. And I had some, <laughs> some idiot on uh, Twitter tell me like, you know, like, why don't you, why aren't you there? Why did you leave and go back to London? You know, like since you, you shouldn't, you be rebuilding it. And this guy is an old boss of mine, by the way, everyone started ripping into him uh, on Twitter. Thankfully, I didn't have the strength to rip into him. Honestly, people on social media, sometimes the things that they come out with, you're just like, are you actually serious? Yeah. I don't know. I think some people see this as like a geopolitical thing. Some people see it like they see it as a piece of news. Whereas for us, it's just like human tragedy first. It's our homes. Yeah, it's literally our homes. And this, the scale of this is no one knows where to start. No one knows where to, you know, if you're doing enough, no one knows. Like on the same day, like I went, I passed by my, 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 uh, my newest parents place to see if they needed help with the cleanup. They'd already done so much cleaning up already. And it was so like, you know, I mean, thankfully their house was okay. It was just the windows and they'd already cleaned up. So they were in good spirits. They're usually in good spirits anyway. And they're like, you know, fighters. And then I was like, sorry, I have to go rush because I have to go find my father's car. So my dad had left his car kind of by the blast site. So I had to go find that. And then when I went there, like the car's roof was caved in and the windows were smashed. And obviously, obviously, like, you know, it was drivable, which is much more than other cars. So I was able to drive it with gloves and stuff because I'm not even sure, like, if this ammonium nitrate is poisonous or and no one has told us from the government, like, what this shit actually was. So I had, like, gloves on and mask, obviously mask and everything on. And, but I looked at the building that my dad was in and I just like was standing there in the middle of the street, like just mumbling to myself, like how, I don't understand how he got out. And I started grabbing strangers, telling them, I don't understand how he got out. I don't understand how he got out. And I think they realized, you know, like no one, no one laughed at me. (laughs) Like no one thought I was insane because they understood what I meant. Like they all had that feeling of like, we don't understand how we're all standing here. We don't understand it. We don't understand. And yeah, like I think, like I have some friends today who are back at work. You know, they ha- in Lebanon, they have to be back at work and they're telling me it's surreal. Like I'm doing my work and I'm, my life has fallen apart and I'm, I don't understand how to be these two people at the same time who has to like answer emails and, you know, uh, then go explain to my child, you know, like what happened to our house and why we can't be in our house. And, and it's so like, what's the point? What's the point of this stupid email? You know, like, yeah, well, I mean. I guess the, the right now the point is maybe that email like uh, like feeds the family for a month, you know, like but but I, yeah, like it doesn't. And actually, I've I've had this weird thing since I've been back in London. Like I'm looking at people like out of my window, and everyone's just carefree. The weather's been beautiful. Everyone's like having you know it's, it's like summer loving, and like everyone's just so happy. And I'm angry, and I know it's a weird reaction. I know it's not fair. I know people, you know no one owes me their grief or their sadness. Like I know it's if uh, no one would be able to live if we were all sad all the time about everything going on in the world, we wouldn't be able to function. 
but I just have this bit inside me that's like, you'll never understand what my people are going through, which I know people have that feeling about other tragedies that maybe I'm not as empathetic with. And I I understand, and I'm sure I'll get over this, like this anger phase, but it's just like, I wish that we had, that was from a place that could be that carefree all the time. And you can't, it's just, you can't, even if you live, even if you live in Australia and you're Lebanese, like you're, you're stuck to the news, like listening to this, hoping everyone's okay, feeling guilty for not being there. It's just like this curse. And a lot of people have said this, like this, this curse of, of being Lebanese. And I mean, you know, a lot of places have similar uh, afflictions. It's just like, I don't know, the, the amount, a friend of mine, Andrew Arsan, wrote a book um, uh, called Lebanon, uh, A Country in Fragments. Uh, that's a history of Lebanon. And on the first page of the introduction, he just lists all of the tragedies that have happened in the last 15 years. And you read that list from like the assassination of the former prime minister to like 40, 50 car bombings, a war with Israel in 2006, a financial crisis, this, that. You just read this list and you're like, how? How? Are we still, how can we crack a smile, let alone be known as this like fun-loving, you know, gregarious people? How can we? I was just going to say the dichotomy of like you go and there's clubs and there's music and it's so like, you know, the food's amazing and you kind of see all of that. And then to know, you know, all of all of what's going on under that and that's been going on under that is is the dichotomy is quite difficult to even get your head around. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even even like on the ground, like the people cleaning up, like people are still joking, not joking kind of with disrespect, but, you know, kind of this light joshing that Lebanese people are known for, like a, to like just keep people's spirits up and not change who we are deep down, you know, like we can't, we can't change. And I mean, I've I seen you post about this and a lot of people have posted also like about the, like we don't want to be resilient. We don't want to be the phoenix that rises out of the ashes and all of these bullshit platitudes that everyone keeps trotting out every time there's a tragedy in Lebanon. Like we've risen enough. Like we just want to stay risen, you know, like we just want to be like a a lot of people also like friends have been saying, you know, we say we're lucky to be alive, but is that all we deserve? Just being alive. That's the, that's it. You know, just surviving is what we deserve. Like, no, like we want to thrive. We want normal lives. Why, why don't we get to live like people live all around the world with dreams and ambitions and uh, weekends in the park? And like, why don't we get that? You know, why do we just get to say like, we're lucky to be alive? I saw you tweeted. I think he said, uh, I wouldn't wish resilience on like my worst enemy, basically. Yeah, because resilience is is not something to be proud of. Like this resilience we have. And I, in a weird way, I have been proud of it in the past that that it's built us into people who can, you know, withstand a lot of things. Like I think at some point, I mean, just to bring it back to something extremely stupid, like Brexit, like I remember having a very panicked response to Brexit at first, like, Oh no, everything's going to fall apart. Then like my Lebanese brain kicked in and went, what the fuck are you talking about? Like you've lived in situations where you didn't have electricity, water, anything. You had to figure it all out by yourself. You'll be fine. Whatever happens with Brexit. Like, you know, I mean, I know that's a very kind of weird parallel, but it just, that resilience is built in that like every, every problem is solvable. Every, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Like, okay, like you didn't get this thing exactly the way it was supposed to to arrive to you. Okay, it's fine. You figure it out. You figure it out because we're used to figuring everything out. But that resilience comes at the cost of just this carefree attitude to life. You know, like I see people, 
Like Lebanese people always think it's so weird when they see, I don't know, backpackers backpacking through a war zone, like these Norwegian backpackers in a war zone. They're like, what are you doing? Like, you know, and like, yeah, but I tell them that's, 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 they're so carefree that this is an option for them. Like why the, you know, as a Lebanese person, why would you go backpacking in a war zone? Like we're, all we want is a day in the park, but there are things we can't even dream of, like, you know, downtime or, or, or worries that we've never thought about, you know? And like, I even hesitated. I mean, the, a lot of my friends lost their pets, like during, which I know sounds uh, uh, with all of this sounds almost, I'm not going to say insignificant because like I, I, as a pet, like a very loving pet owner myself, like I would, you know, like fall apart in an instant if anything happened to my cat. And, um, And so, like, there's been organizations doing search and rescue for pets because all these pets obviously ran away. They like they were scared, terrified. They've been finding the pets, and and even like this, like having a pet is the most low pressure thing in the world. You know, pets just there to love you and you know get some cuddles and like a bit of food and a bit of a walk once a, you know, a couple of times a day. And even our pets are suffering. Did you see the videos? Of the pets being reunited with their owners, yeah. Oh, my God. There was one dog that was just, like, hugging his owner, like, on her and just, like, wouldn't let her go. I was like, oh, my God. Plus, these pets are a lifesaver now, you know, like, with the, the PTSD and the anxiety and the depression people are going to go through and are already going through. Like, these pets are going to save lives, to be honest. You know, like, the, a, a cuddle with a cat or a dog right now is is li a life-saving life-changing experience in Lebanon. I don't know I don't know where to like kind of end this. But uh, so the the last thing is I think is keep people so yesterday Madonna was doing a video about like she wants to raise money for Impact Lebanon. I know Dua Lipa shared some stuff and I even though this might sound frivolous, I think it's so important for celebrities like that to keep this at the forefront of people's minds because once the media glare goes away, Like people have years of difficulty ahead of them to build back up from this. And we need this, wherever it comes from, this attention on fundraising, attention on keeping the pressure up on our government, on international pressure, people writing to their MPs, telling them, please lobby like the government to make sure that the Lebanese government is held accountable for this, etc. You know, that's going to matter like in, in the long run. So that's another thing we're trying to figure out is how do we keep attention on this issue for a very long time in the press, in the media, on like celebrities, Instagram, or, you know, influence, whatever, who cares? Like anyone who has a platform who can make people care about us and about this for the longest time possible uh, is, is going to help people on the ground because we need like all the money and help and just to get back to zero. It's not even to build, you know, to get it to 100. It's just to get back to where we were before all of this happened. No, I think I think it's very important to stress that because there is, you know, for for years now, months now, there is this talk of like, oh, performative kind of talking about something. And I think it's very important to stress that it, it's it actually makes a difference. Visibility really does matter. That's how you increase donations. That's how you make, you know, a government and a people know that you're there and that you care about them and that you're going to hold the people who did wrong accountable. Like it actually does matter. And I think it's very important to stress that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like public international pressure matters. The fact that Madonna, you know, shared this, You know, in the past, maybe I used to think it was cynical. Like when I would see Bono or whatever sharing something, I'd be like, Ugh, you don't really care. 
But actually, maybe they do. And even if they don't, they're getting the message out. I don't care if they care or not. I care that the message, I care that someone watching it cares and that then does what they have to do and donates. And and, and it's just, and honestly, like the people haven't been sleeping. Like people on the ground have been working day and night. Volunteers have been working day and night to clean up the streets, to get people fed, to get people sheltered, to get people clothes. There's a donation, clothing donation drive happening here from the UK. The Lebanese diaspora has mobilized. So obviously, Impact Lebanon is here in the UK. They've mobilized. They've they've gone from like raising you know twenty thousand pounds to seven million pounds. You know, so like they've they're building their organization at an insane pace to make sure they're doing this right and transparent and and in the right time frame to help people. And so, like we're all rising to this. Uh, I, I don't know if occasion is the right word, but like we're we're all rising to this to this challenge and this tragedy to to like figure this out once and for all to like Beirut is wiped off the map you know like our capital is just not there like it's it's insane this this notion that you know my my mom keeps telling me this is going to be historic you know they're going to write about it in history books like this is the third time Beirut was uh, erased from the face of the earth you know like it's it's uh, the scale of it is unimaginable um really unimaginable. Like, I think the human brain, like a friend was telling me, I can't process this. And I was telling her, if we process this, how do we go on with our life? If we process this level of death, injury, destruction, and just injustice and randomness that this can happen to us as people at any time, you know, we can, you know, deal with bits and pieces of it and and try to move forward as best we can. But I think that perhaps, I don't know, perhaps helps with this feeling of survivor's guilt. Like there are people on the ground doing what they're doing. And then there's you and people in the diaspora and, you know, everyone as much as possible doing what what they can do from afar, which they wouldn't be able to do if they were on the ground. And I think it's important to remember that, like what you're doing now, you would not have been able to do if you were still there. And what you're doing is very important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying and, I, and I'm also telling everyone like on the ground, you know, if there's things you can't deal with because you're too close, talk to me. If you need the boost of hope, like I'm now back in a city where I feel safe. I'm back in a city where I have, you know, the privilege of feeling safe and okay and have mind space. So if you need to talk, talk to me. Don't talk to another friend in Beirut who's going through. And because I was there when it happened, I also have the empathy, you know, required to understand what you went through without asking you or telling you I don't know what it was like. I know what it was like. I was there. Uh, I, I went through all the trauma of, of thinking I've lost my dad, um, and and I actually had that, you know, that thought like I was at home and I was like, okay, I'm gonna. And this is before we knew what it was when we thought it was an attack. Like, I'm, my first thought was, okay, I'm gonna die at home with my mom. My my dad's gonna die alone down there. And my sister, who's in Paris, is going to be alone and, like, surviving this family. And Noor is going to be alone in London. And I I honestly didn't even, like, the Noor bit, I couldn't even process because I, I think I would have destroyed myself if I thought about that. So I was just thinking about, like, the stuff I could process. Then it sunk in, like, when I saw how Noor, you know, how scared she was, I realized, like, oh, yeah, I was also in harm's Like, I couldn't, I don't know, like, there's just so much... Uh, stress responses that happen that Nasya, i can't believe that you even had to think about all of those things you sent me a voice note i messaged you and you sent me a voice note and when i heard that like you're you're so breathless like you can hear the panic just in 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 your voice 
Yeah, Nora was Nora was telling me that because like a friend, she went to see some friends that night, so she wouldn't be alone. And uh, they they asked her like you know like how did you hear about it? So she replayed them my voice voice note, and she told me like I hadn't realized like how panic. So I re- went back and listened to the voice note, and I I was like shit. Like I sound yeah. I mean I guess it was around the same time I sent you one as well. Like it was sheer panic because the the helplessness as well of you know i wanted to go down and find my father and my mom was telling me please don't please don't please don't please stay with me and i was torn so that's why like, i had to find the this 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 driver who could potentially pick him up and i was <laughs> and there's like the silly things like I, I had put one shoe on to go get my dad then my mom told me please don't leave and i just stayed with one shoe on for the next hour like i didn't even think of taking that shoe off or putting the other shoe on and it's just your brain just doesn't know how to organize all of these thoughts. Um, and I think cause I stayed with Noor a lot on the phone, like she, it felt like she was there. And I think that's why, like, I wasn't, I don't think my mind would have been able to process like, you know, not seeing her again. I mean, again, like I, I want to stress, like I was very far away from harm's way. Like I was six, seven kilometers away. But in that moment, you don't know that you're away from harm's way, right? You don't know what's happening. You've just heard the biggest explosion well, that I'd ever heard, but now it turns out it's one of the top 10 explosions in the history of mankind. Uh, and I looked at my steps later that day, you know, like, because it's funny because you also keep your stupid rituals. So I had to see like how many steps I'd done that day. And I realized I did 10,000 steps at home. Wow. You just went round and round. I just kept running around, just trying to like keep, because if I couldn't sit still, like you have so much adrenaline, like rushing through you that like, I just couldn't sit still. So I just kept going around and around and around in circles. And I was like, oh, shit, I did 10,000 steps in the living room trying to call my father, trying to call Noor, trying to call my friends, making sure everyone was okay, you know. And then, like, every few minutes, someone new would pop up into my head, like, oh, no, no, they live near the port. Check up on them, check up on them, check up on them. And, um, yeah, just, you know, it's – I'm kind of want to go back at some point, uh, not too far in the future, uh once i've you know managed to do some good stuff from here in terms of like raising uh you know maybe some in-kind donations that kind of thing maybe go back onto the ground uh see what what's what can be done there like in a month or something i don't know it's just all up in the air at the moment i think um i think for everyone listening like please like you know if you're if you're arab then you probably um have some some I don't know there's so much desensitizing happening or that's been happening I think to towards tragedy in in the Middle East and and I think it's really important to remember and to really understand that you know this no one this is not normal anywhere um, nor should it be and like please talk about it share about it please donate like it really like I think you said you will be saving lives and and you you will like please please do I don't know what more to say I'm like gonna cry no like these donations will be going to the right place they will be helping people with immediate relief uh you know like phase one relief from like food shelter medical help you know that's like the first phase that needs to be dealt with um so that's where the donations are going i think the kind of stuff like i'm talking about with you know finding computers and stuff is a phase two thing um once people have physical shelter physical safety and they can then move back to like finding a livelihood uh then they're going to need those things uh if you're 
in country i don't know who's listening to podcasts at the moment in lebanon so my guess is no one is listening to this but um uh do seek help for there's a lot of uh psychologists who've offered their help pro bono for ptsd ptsd is real uh again i was six kilometers away seven kilometers away i have not slept a single night in the past week i have been having nightmares where i'm showered in glass and i wasn't even in a building where the glass shattered so it's the, this is real i've had muscle pains physical and i i read up on uh, online like these are all normal ptsd reactions or something called acute stress response so the closer you were to it the the probability of your acute stress response being higher uh obviously increases and and if and they say like these kind of things can last up to a month so if they last beyond the month you should definitely be talking to someone about it taking care of yourself not resorting to drugs and alcohol uh which could be fun for other stuff but not for this uh <laughs> you know like not don't don't use them to deal with this yeah and if you have lebanese friends if you're non lebanese you have lebanese friends reach out to them we all appreciate it ask i think someone said some useful things like you know don't ask them for inform you know don't ask them to explain to you what happened don't just be there as a human and say i'm here for you if you want to talk a lot of people have been sending me beautiful messages as a saying i'm here if you ever need a minute of positivity on the phone let me know if you want a voice note let me know like very that's the kind of help we need we don't need people asking us explain this to me was this terrorism was it like no like we're not here for that go watch the news everyone's covering it uh, do do reach out to people you know who've been affected lebanese or not by the way because a lot of non lebanese people live in 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 lebanon a lot of foreign correspondents a lot of foreign workers uh, a lot of you know people who've made it their home um uh, reach out to them as well this is not an exclusively lebanese tragedy there are people from all around the world who live in beirut uh, there are migrant workers from ethiopia from the philippines from bangladesh who were very very affected a lot of people died in their communities as well uh, and were injured etc and have been helping clean up and have been helping with the relief effort so it is an international city even palestinian refugees are like donating yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's even like a a, a Palestinian like kind of relief organization that's been helping with the cleanup um again it's in these like worst moments that we see like just how good like i think these are glimpses of the lebanon we want this lebanon that is not racist this lebanon that is inclusive uh in the streets it's 50% women 50% men cleaning up everyone's like uh you know i was going to say hand in hand but everyone is still to some extent scared about coronavirus in the in the midst of this people are obviously wearing their masks etc but you know this kind of supersedes coronavirus in terms of fear so people are doing what they have to do like the the, the kind of grassroots response to this is the lebanon we dream of but i just wish it wasn't in like such tragic circumstances but people being there for each other across socioeconomic uh you know like kind of categories across nationalities just everyone with one focus which is kind of getting through this uh and i hope that in future the focus is not just surviving but thriving and sooner rather than later because we've all had it i don't think our bodies and minds can withstand anything like this again it's been decades uh again i've said this a million times but like i'm lucky enough to work with a lot of very young people through the production company people in their early 20s fresh out of uh, university the this generation does not deserve to live this mess again you know like so so many generations before have had their future robbed from them and these people are so talented 
so open to the world. They have everything to succeed. They have everything that they need to be like global leaders. And like, we're not letting them take it away from the next generation. You know, like it's, they don't, they don't get to take this away from the next, the next batch of Lebanese people. Yeah. Well, Nasri, thank you. I know this must have been a difficult, a difficult conversation um, for you to have. Yeah, I tried to, I fought, I fought back some tears there at some point. But uh, yeah, it's been, you know. So did I, to be honest, just li- just listening to you. So I thank you for sharing. And, and please, if you're listening, do donate, do, do, do your part because Beirut needs us. And if you have any ideas about donations, any ideas about things I, we haven't thought about, please reach out. Like I'm on Twitter. My DMs are open. You can just reach out. So uh, let us know. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Alia. Thanks, Nasri. Yeah, let's see you soon. Big hugs.